Hey folks at home, welcome to the PhD Going Industry Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Matt Carlson, and the purpose of this podcast is to help grad students find jobs after grad school, particularly jobs in the business world. However, from time to time, I like to have academics on to provide an alternate perspective, and that's exactly what we have this week. This week, we've got Dr. William Luce, Assistant Professor of Management, with us to chat a little bit about his experience in academia. You may know him uh, on Instagram as Dr. Big Chill Will. So we talk about a couple things today. One, we talk about what it's like to work in an institution that values both research and teaching. We talk about his experiences of being on the academic job market. He shares some eye-opening aspects to his journey that I think you'll find really interesting. And he also gives some advice to folks who want to stay in higher ed after finishing grad school and get that tenure track position as a professor. So this is a perfect episode for those who have not fully decided on whether or not they're going to go to industry instead of academia after they graduate. If you do know you want to go to industry, you need a plan. You need a step-by-step plan that tells you the exact behaviors and activities that you need to engage in to maximize your chance of getting a recruiter's attention. And I've got that exact thing for you. It's my six-week checklist. It gives you six weeks, one or two tasks per, per week, and you can follow it along in your journey. If you're about to graduate, this is the perfect thing to get to uh, just give some organization and structure to your pursuits of an industry career. Anyway, you can download that at phdgoingindustry.com slash six-week checklist, or you can click the link in the description of this episode Uh, whether you're on podcast or YouTube. And if you want links to anything else that we mentioned in this episode, check the episode description. We'll have links to uh, several things, including uh, William's uh, Instagram page, his LinkedIn page, and a few other things that he mentions. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Will, thank you for coming on the podcast. It is so good to talk to you and see you in person. Been following you for a little bit. We've been chatting in the DMs. Um, but it's great to see your face. If you could, uh, Dr. Will Luce, introduce yourself to the folks at home and let them know where they can follow you online. Well, I am Dr. William Luce. I am currently an assistant professor of management at the University of Laverne in Southern California, Los Angeles County to be specific. And you can follow me on Instagram, of course, for the you know informal kind of thing at, at Dr. Big Chill Will. And then you can also find me on LinkedIn as well. I don't have my LinkedIn link memorized, but if you type in my name, you know, what you see actually technically be this corner because of the podcasting platform, I'm pretty easy to find. Like, I'm one of the few William Luces out there in the world. Absolutely. And I'll pull links to both the Instagram and the LinkedIn, and I'll put them in the description of this episode so folks can scroll down and click on those and go straight to your profile. So, Will, um, there's a lot to talk about with you, but let's start from the beginning. What brought you to grad school in the first place? Well, honestly, my my older sister has her PhD as well in environmental science, where I consider her to be the definitely the smartest sibling, so to speak. But, you know, she did because she did that, that would that at least opened the possibility for me that, hey, you know, there are people out here in the world, especially people where I'm from being Mississippi that, you know, go on this journey. But honestly, I I had very little desire to do it. And going in, it was really more of a. 
well, last resort thing. Hey, I year to go to grad school, you know, do this doctoral program at UT San Antonio. Or my plan B, quote unquote, was, hey, you can join the Air Force, be an officer. It's not a bad life, all things considered. And, but honestly, once I got into it, um, I really felt that it was for me. But it definitely took, it took time to get to that point. Yeah. And um, so what did you envision yourself doing after grad school when you were a grad student? Um, I definitely wanted I wanted to do academia or at least I liked the idea of it. But it, my expectations and what I what I wanted to do really kind of grew uh, throughout my journey. Where, I, you know, and I'm pretty sure a lot of the grad students, current PhDs out there can relate to is Throughout grad school, you're told, like, hey, do this. Be the best researcher you can. You know, place really well at, like, a prestigious institution or, you know, a really great industry job or things like that. And I think the people that give you that advice are really well-meaning, where at the end of the day, they want you to do the best that you can. Um, but I know for me, at least, it was important to, you know, especially as I continued through my program, Find a job and a position and a place that worked for me, even, even if it wasn't necessarily the most prestigious or quote unquote brand name job, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And when you're looking back at that time period, what are the things, the activities that you did then that stand out that helped set you up for the job that you have now? Well, I I guess definitely say that I tried to do my best in the classroom, of course. I had excellent instructors that taught me all of the, you know, the ways of how to go about research, how to be a great academic. And something that I think was very unique about our program at UT San Antonio in the College of Business is that we had an instructor that taught us how to teach. And I know that for most of the graduate students out there that enter academia, especially if you're in a program that's more research focused or is encouraging you to engage in research, teaching kind of takes a you know, backseat, so to speak, where not for all, but for some, um, and I'm pretty sure this may be an irony that our non-academic audience may find interesting, is that, well, a lot of times a new professor, their first year when they're in front of you teaching, that may be only the first or second class that they taught. But for us, at least at UT San Antonio, we had an excellent instructor, uh, big shout out to Dr. Utep, which was a marketing professor that introduced us to and helped us helped us develop our own personal pedagogy, right? And I think that that was a very, very formative and important experience for me. While, yes, I do enjoy research, it's important to me, I find it interesting. It, and I, the part of it I enjoy the most is really more so, hey, I get to collaborate with people, you know, mm. cool people I know and, you know, do things like that and know, explore ideas and do things I'm interested in versus, you know, high impact journals and metrics and things like that. Right. But, you know, as, the teaching bar is important to me as too. too. I, I would say mainly because both of my parents are teachers, you know, mm. K 12 level, of course, I think it's kind of yeah. ingrained in me, even though I spent a lot of time when I was younger telling them I'm never doing this. I'm going to go work in a bank or something like that. Like schools stink, like kids are annoying, you know, mm. the typical things that, you know, younger people say. But I've, I have found, especially as I went on, that I really felt at home in the classroom. And 
I'm rambling a little bit, of course, but having that opportunity to develop my teaching pedagogy was, you know, it was a great one. And I can say that it's, it's influenced me a lot. And yeah. it's kind of, it, it's definitely influenced how I look about the way I think about and navigate the academy. Mm. But I feel like I got a little off track, didn't I? No, no, that was great. And it, that, uh, it made me remember a, another podcast conversation I had. It won't be the last interview that came out. It'll be the interview before yeah, that with before, Kelly right? Voss. Yeah. Um, and she talked about how she became, she was actually at community college as an undergrad and then went to grad school and then graduated and then became a professor at a community college. And she talked a lot about how, um, you know, if you're going to go into teaching, putting those reps in early as a grad student and getting not only the experience, but also developing your pedagogy and developing, getting even certificates of teaching mm -hmm. um, can really help you stand out because, you know, we, we often talk about like the research professor jobs as like super competitive, but the teaching jobs are competitive too. And um, what would you, what are the things that you think uh, stuck out for you when you were on the job market um, that helped set you up for this job? but more the teaching side of things. I would, I would definitely say putting the reps in was important because, yeah. you know, as a graduate student, of course, we are often, I don't want to say free labor, but we are, we were definitely, how can I say this? We were definitely labor that was utilized, like maximally utilized, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I ended up teaching principles of management, you know, that management 300, that intro course, depending on the institution where you are. I ended up teaching that about eight or nine times. <laughs> eight or nine times? Yes. Dude, I taught one course as a grad student. That was it. It was more like, hey, um, hey, uh, hey, graduate students, this is the course we're going to teach. And as I was going through my program, we were hiring more professors in my area of domain expertise where if they're coming in as new hires, they're negotiating. They're like, hey, I want to mm -hmm. teach organizational behavior, which is my area of expertise. I want to teach compensation. So... I never got to teach <laughs> the courses in my area of expertise. And I honestly sure. think that that kind of, that probably did not help me on the job market just for people like, you know, looking at my CV letters and yeah. things like that. But I do feel that just having the time in the classroom is very helpful on the back end because, because you don't want to show up to the job the first day or whatever and you not know or have very little experience in the classroom right yeah and i feel that once you i feel that we often underestimate kind of kind of got some i feel like we often underestimate the importance of you know presence and i don't want to say charisma because that can be a loaded term but at least the idea of presence in the classroom being engaging you know when teaching students where of course you have to know the domain material and things like that but I also feel that it's very important to have that presence too, where students aren't students aren't unintelligent. Like they can pick up on you know whether you're confident, you know whether you care, whether you care you're you're a warm person and things like that. And I think that that goes that can go quite a long way in your classroom performance beyond you just knowing the content. 
because I can tell my students, like, you know, every model or every motivation model, things like that or whatever. Um, I can put the plan behavior, be, uh, plan behavior model, hygiene and fish being, I can draw that up there. But at the end of the day, like, what does that mean to, what does that mean to them? How do I make that come alive for them? Or how do we discuss and take on this material in a way which they can immediately go apply it in their everyday lives? Not necessarily work, but life in general. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's let's maybe fast forward a little bit to the point in time in grad school when you were on the job market or preparing to get on the job market. Uh, what was that process like of preparing to start submitting out applications? I would say that it was very anxiety provoking for me, um, where we know that publications are important when you're on the job market as academic. But at the time, I had I had zero academic publications. I only had a lot of promise. But I was lucky to have an advisor that um, was willing and able to work with me to help me, you know, build my research up. And I can say that I can say that in in some cases, the expectations for graduate student research productivity is very skewed, where the exceptional graduate students are considered to be the norm. Like, hey, you have three or four publications. That's yeah. great. But when you, and that looks good, but when you really think about it, how much did that graduate student, I'm, I'm not knocking the quality of anyone's work, but how much did that grad student really do that research? Or were they just a co-author that happened to be there helping out, right? Yeah. Or rather, I think the larger question that institutions should ask themselves when evaluating candidates is that, can this person produce independently, hmm. right? Not just research, but also can they do the job of being a professor independently where it's nice to have, you know, the help of your advisor, people for your institution, I think, your previous institution. But as I've been told many times, once you get that job, you're there in your office and you have to do the job yourself and no one is coming to help you. But um, the research part was important where I feel like if I would have had more publications, I would have, in quotation marks, placed at a more prestigious institution. Um, but also, I think that, I also think it's very important, too, to be able to tell your story in terms of, mm. you know, at least re research-wise and teaching-wise. This is, you know, this is my, not necessarily core belief, this is the core thing I'm interested in. And here is a conceptual layout of, you know, here are the things I'm working on when it comes to research. Here's a, you know, mental map that I have in my mind that I'm displaying for you, right? You yeah. people that want to hire me, give me a job, but the things I'm going to be working on. Because something else I think that's important for, again, hiring committees, people that are going to make an investment in time and money in you, you know, to hopefully hire you, is that they want to see, you know, they want to see that, they want to see what you're working on and they want to see how you're thinking about it. And this often swings in the other direction where people feel that they have to work in, you know, one area on one thing. Like I have to be, I have to study compensation or I have this, I have to research negotiation, you know, which is, you know, which is fine. And some people do that. But I, I also think that people want to see how your work, you know, ties together or how yeah. can you tie everything together for them? Because if every, it's not just it's not just the fact that people's work is scattered and it's all over the place, and this whether it be teaching or research, but it's 
if you can't tell the story about how everything fits together, that's that works to your detriment, right? Mm. Yeah. Well, where now I've said this out loud, it's really about being able to tell your story. And I think that that's an important thing to do where if you tell your story, it may not, everyone isn't going to like it. Like that's just, that's just the reality of things. But if you tell your story well, and, and of course, to a certain extent, you're authentic, I think that you will do, you will do better and you will find your fit versus trying to present and project yourself in a way that doesn't necessarily align with your personality, your values, mm. what have you. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think one thing that stuck out to me when you were talking was the value of being able to speak simply about complex topics. And I think one thing that I struggled with and a lot of grad students struggle with, um, especially when as you get deeper and deeper into your research, it's easy to become uh, someone who can only talk in jargon. And... Um, you know, when you go on the job market, you're not talking to the people who are reading your research papers. They're people in other fields with their own jargon. And if you're unable to zoom out and, like you said, have that mental map that you can explicitly and clearly give to a hiring committee, um, they're just going to see you as someone who's like locked in your own little world and unable to, um, you know, come out of it. That's no, that's very that's very important, and that's a very good point that I don't think is emphasized enough in the advisement of graduate students as they're on the job market. Where when you go when you go to these job talks, they're going to be people that haven't. You may run people that have done research in forty years, mm. right? Yeah. May you may also run into the sociology professor. And I'm not disparaging sociology or anything, but if you're not in sociology, the, soci the sociology professor that is friends with, you know, one of the other professors in your given department may just walk in, you know, with their cup of coffee and, you know, we're in audio format. Most people won't be able to see the Starbucks cup I'm holding up. They may happen to walk in their cup of coffee, sit down and pick up a copy of your paper and sit there in the back and ask you questions. And in both of those cases, whether it be the person that's not necessarily research active uh, or has been so in a while, the random sociology professor or just the people outside of your field that aren't necessarily familiar with the jargon and the theories and mm -hmm. you know, methods analysis and things like that, if you can't make your work come alive, not only do they see it, but the people that are the people that are supposed to understand your work a little better evaluating you are also gonna say, huh, well, like that's that's interesting, but I don't think they did a good job of explaining that really well. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So when you, uh, what what year of your PhD were you in when you were applying uh, for jobs? My, f the end of my third year, the beginning of my fourth year, where okay. I, was, I was starting to look at the end of my third year. Yeah. Kind of looking around, but it really picked up in my fourth year. Okay. And you, were you already dissertating at that point? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, doing the the combined dissertation job search. Such a fun yeah. place to be. Yeah, and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. It is a very yeah. challenging time in life. I did that too, and it was it was not fun. Um, so, how many do you remember off the top of your head? How many jobs you applied to that job season? Eighty four. No, eighty four. Yes. Whoa. In total. That is that is a lot of academic jobs. I don't. I think. 
in my field, I had less, I had about 10 job openings in like my little world. Of course, it's much smaller than, than business. Um, but that blows my mind. 85 job applications. That is a lot of documents to prep. Well, I'll tell you this. I, I had templates. Um, I was lucky to, well, first of all, having an older sister, the PhD helps because she sure. writes, she writes things, similar things in different fields, of course, similar things all the time. But I had I had documents where, and a very practical tip I recommend for everyone is, I had different cover letters, you know, versions of my CV for different types of institutions, whether it be research, balance, teaching, or whatever. And you know, reading the job ads, doing a little research about the institution before you apply, goes a long way in helping you prepare those documents really quickly. Where. The people that are looking at your materials are busy. They're probably teaching classes, doing research. They have families. They have hobbies and things like that. And you want to be clear. And also, I don't want to say brief, meaning that you you submit something really short. But you want to make you want to make your points very clearly, very quickly, so they can be seen, right? And I think that that goes a long way in making you stand out. Where you don't want to, you know, for example. I don't you don't want to give a hiring committee when you're discussing, you know, your research philosophy. Here's this three page document discussing, you know, the history of my area of research and the present and, you know, where it's going to go in the future. No, you want to be able to sum that up in a paragraph. Right. And having those having documents and examples, you know, if you can get them from anyone, whether it be more senior students, um, advisors, professors in your program can go a long way. And then not only that. Just don't don't directly copy what they do, but make them your own. Mm-hmm. Because again, the people reading your documents can tell <laughs> if you just copied and pasted something, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think a great point in there uh, about less is more that stuck out to me. And that's not just for academic job applications. You know, for, yeah. for anyone listening going to industry. You have even less time to catch people's attention and tell your story. And I think I, I don't think I sat, I sat on a hiring committee, uh, not for a tenure track position, for a research scientist position, but the, the position that took my job over. Um, and people will give like 60 minutes, 60 seconds to maybe like, two or three minutes to pour over everything you submitted. And um, that'll be their first round. And like whatever impression they get from that first, say, minute or two is kind of like their assessment of you. And then they check you to like look into further or they put an X on you and they throw you in the trash. And that's that's how it's done. And so if you can't like click with someone through those documents really quickly, um, your application just goes in the waste bin. And uh, in industry, it's even worse. You've got like 10 to 15 seconds, someone looking at your resume to really catch their attention. But um, so if you don't mind my asking, how many like how many phone interviews did you get? And then how many like on campus interviews? I'm interested in knowing kind of the conversion. Kind of the conversion rate and ratio. Yeah, absolutely. In all, I had, let's say, five to six phone interviews. And I also interviewed, a, I had a couple of interviews at my Phil's annual conference um, mm-hmm. there, you know, hey, let's get to know you better and things like that, where 
those phone interviews, informal interviews, introductions, um, ended up only turning into one one campus visit, and the one campus mm-hmm. visit is where I'm currently at now. Where just you know, just to believe, be completely honest, I think that at the time my lack of publications, you know, got in my way. Where sure. I think just having one publication or something would have mar like. I don't want to say marginally help would have been a actually probably a big help would have got more eyes on me because mm-hmm. at the time I had great potential, but it's just, it's just that I happened to not have like any tangible products and, True. you know, whether for better, better, worse. Um, yeah. The people looking to hire you are looking at those things. And I think, and I, they're also looking for those things, no matter, you know, what institution type of institution you're going to work for. Or of course, higher expectations at research institutions. But I would say now more than ever, everyone wants you to be, you know, quote unquote, research active. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I feel like, so that was 85 uh, applications, five to six calls, and then one campus visit. I mean, that, that follows the, um, the conversion for industry drops pretty closely. I think it's like, it's if you do a hundred applications, you'll get ten calls and one offer, something yeah. like that. And uh, so that that falls pretty closely to that. And I think, I think for folks who uh, hear about the academic job market being so difficult to get a job, I think one thing to point out is that it, it's probably is a similar conversion. There's like a what an eight percent chance that a application will turn into a job offer, eight percent or less, and if you're in a field that has like, you know, five positions or 10 or even 20 positions open a year, you know, your chances of actually getting an application turning into an offer just slim down just because there's not that many opportunities to submit. Um, what was your campus visit like? It was amazing where yeah. um, it was supposed to my current employer, of course. I had never heard of this university before ever in my life. Like I'll, as I was applying, you know, looking at different universities' websites, um, I was like, oh, like, I've never heard of this place before, but, you know, it's in Southern California. It seems nice. And honestly, I fell in love with the place from the moment that I got off the airplane. I had dinner with one of the um, senior professors here. The people were amazing. They were engaging. And it felt, I felt like I was at home here. Hmm. And, That's awesome. you know, some people have different priorities or things like that when it comes to, you know, jobs. But I do think over the mid to long term, the way that you see yourself fitting in matters a lot. Because yeah. if you're not, not, not just about fit, but if you don't see yourself being happy at a place, how are you going to be productive? And if you're not productive, whether it be teaching, research, whatever they ask you to do, um, how are you going to keep, you know, very practical speaking, how are you going to keep the job? You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And so what was your, are you, you're in your second year there? No, my, starting my, starting my fifth year, man, time is flying. Fifth year? Yeah, pandemic, How long pandemic we... time. Okay. Maybe we've been following each other for longer than I thought. Um, Probably so. So fifth year. So you're, are you going to go up for tenure in the next couple of years? Yes, I go up in the fall. I have to have everything submitted. Um, beginning of August, end of August, 
Very cool. That is awesome. Um, okay, well, let me let me fast forward then a little bit. So one of the things, and I think you used this phrase a little bit earlier in our conversation, is that you work at a balanced institution where both research and teaching matters. What's that like? Um, I would I would definitely say that in comparison to what people what people within the academic industry consider, you know, the job professor to be, I have to I have to devote a little. I don't want to say more time to teaching, but I do have to be intentional about my time in the classroom because. Mm. This is a smaller private institution, smaller class size, and students expect more engagement and contact with their professors, right? Where on average, my classes tend to be anywhere from 12 to 15 students. Mm. It's like that typical smaller private school educational liberal arts experience, right? And because of that, I just can't roll into the classroom and say, hey, let's lecture for an hour and a half. Here's this test with uh, here. Hey, here, take this test with scantrons, and then I'm out. Right? It's really right. more like we're. I still do lectures. I still do things like that. But it's really more like, hey, let's have these deeper conversations about topics and things like that. And I enjoy it, but it's it's definitely different than the experience of teaching at a mid to large state institution, right? Where larger state schools especially in the colleges of business there's like i don't want to say i don't want to say they're factories or machines and things like that but usually your classes are much larger usually around 40 students or more on average um of course you may you may get to know some of your students but not necessarily all of them but you know you show up to the classroom you do your lectures and things like that outside of that there are like hey teaching is important don't devote too much time to it focus on your research right yeah and it's a little different here where, yes, I'm expected to be engaging, interesting in the classroom, you know, do the best I can for my students. But also, if I if I don't do research, I'm not going to have my job, right? Yeah. So, you know, between doing that, it's also important for me to, you know, be research active. And I think that the more, well, actually, the more I think about it, I think sometimes you know, if you're at one of these institutions where, you know, large state school, higher research expectations, you almost have too much time to do research, if that makes sense, where mm. you can mull on topics, you can, you know, overthink. But I know for me, things have to get done pretty, I don't want to say pretty quickly, but I'm on a little, my timeline is a little more compressed than what it would sure. be for someone at like a R1, research one institution or things like that, where... I have to make quick decisions, you know, things have to go out and things like that. And I especially emphasize that for myself because I am an overthinker. And if you let me sit and think about something, I'll think about it for a whole semester and nothing gets done. Yeah. So I would say overall, um, the time and care in the classroom matters more to an institution like mine. But there are there are research expectations. And I think that this applies anywhere, no matter where you work. Um if you're a good researcher, it allows you certain benefits, right? Or it gains you certain benefits, you know, certain notoriety on campus. Yeah. And with your colleagues. Not necessarily okay with your colleagues, because most students don't sure they don't really care. <laughs> they don't care yeah. like I'm oh, you're writing another paper on turnover. Like they don't care about that. 
Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that's funny. So one topic that grad students uh, ask me a lot about is work-life balance. And, you know, I hear different stories of work-life balance from, from different folks. Um, what would you say your work-life balance is like in academia? Because of the institution that I'm at, I think it's pretty good where one thing that I really gravitated towards and found interesting, um, not just when I was interviewing at my current employer, but now that I'm here, is that my colleagues have lives outside of work. They have children, they have hobbies, they have gardens. They, One of my colleagues is a natural bodybuilder, right? Um Another one of my colleagues like does improv acting on the side, you know, where not to say that this doesn't happen in the academy overall, but I would say that, you know, people, people openly talk about, you know, their families outside of complaining about them. Hey, I have hobbies outside of these things. I like to travel. It's not, it doesn't necessarily fit the archetype of what people expect, you know, especially people in this space, expect academia to be like, and it's a breath of fresh air where, I, I enjoy my weekends. I take my time. I go to the beach. I hike. I try to be active and things like that. And I think that it is important to have that balance because we can't work all the time. And I find that I have the best ideas, you know, if you want to make this, you know, purely instrumental thing. I have the best ideas when I'm not doing work, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I feel like the value that you bring to the classroom uh, is much greater if you do have that, you know, that personal work-life balance where you can actually like recharge and then come back with new energy because it's, it's almost a trope of like going to an R1, you know, state university and the exhausted grumpy professor rolls in and kind of stumbles through their PowerPoint slides and then mm-hmm. runs out while they're, you know, sending emails on their iPhone and then you don't hear from them for you know, a week or two. Um, makes a lot of sense to me. So what other benefits would you say uh, come along with being a professor at a more balanced institution um, or like li- li- liberal arts university? Is that the term that you gave to it? Yeah, I would say liberal. I consider us to be a liberal arts university. But yeah, like that's, I guess that's the right term. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it, it makes, yeah, I think that works. But I would... I would also say that, you know, in addition to like there's more work life balance, um, you know, research expectations aren't as strenuous, but they're definitely still there. I would also say, you know, especially because our university is definitely embedded here in the local community and also there are other smaller liberal arts institutions nearby. I would say that, you know, sometimes because our individual institutions may not emphasize or be necessarily interested in the research that we as individuals do, I think there are plenty of opportunities for collaboration, right? Where, and I don't mean to stereotype, you know, R1 professors, because they do, there's a lot of collaboration going on there, but I do feel that at times, you know, being at a, you know, smaller liberal arts institution where, it isn't necessarily this cutthroat environment. I think that my colleagues at, you know, other places are definitely more willing to collaborate on ideas. Not necessarily that lead to publication, but at least sit down and talk with me and help me think through things. 
Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a lot of uh, cutthroat behavior going on in R1 universities. Um, so since we're on the topic of uh, like the kind of institution you work for, what do you think are the specific things that those kinds of institutions are looking for in candidates uh, applying to assistant professor positions there? I would say that um, they expect you to be competent in the classroom. I would say more so above and beyond your typical research emphasis mm-hmm. job, right? Where they don't necessarily expect you to have taught, what, eight classes like I did? Or yeah. taught a class, one class eight times? But rather having the willingness and flexibility to be open to teaching in different classes where... Oftentimes we refer to the types of classes you taught as like preps. Like being here at my current university, I have about, I have five different preps. I had five different preps over five years. And for a lot of people, I say that, especially to those at more research intensive universities, they gasp, oh my goodness, you have, you have five different preps. You taught five different classes. Like how do you get anything done? It's really not, it's not that difficult, right? Where... You're expected to be more versatile in the classroom as far as like what you teach. But I also think that you do yourself, your students and the institution a favor if you try to find common threads and commonalities in the classes that you teach. And this isn't to say that I use the same material in different classes because it doesn't necessarily work like that. But going back to the idea of pedagogy for a moment and being that, you know, I'm teaching in a specific field, being management, you know, the management side of business is a lot of the concepts like really they tie together in very specific ways that you really only see when you really sit down and think about it. So I think that that's it's important to be able to, you know, be versatile as far as like, you know, what you teach instead of being expected to teach one class, which is often done at your more, again, research intensive institutions. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. So uh, one of the things that you had mentioned before we started recording was that you wanted to talk about choosing your own path in academia. What were you referring to when we were talking about that? I would say mainly um, where it's just not important or, well, actually, let me rephrase that. I think it's important for, you know, for us to care about our work, do quality work. But oftentimes, you know, we're told whether it be from advisors, other students, professors, and things like that, that, you know, the typical research one job is the archetype and the pinnacle of academia, right? Where this is what you should aspire to be. And I think that for most people in most situations, that archetype and everything that comes along with it isn't necessarily the ideal. But even if you were, you, you're interested in that and you want it, I think that there is significant room to make, to bring yourself into these jobs, you know, whether you do academia, industry, or whatever, and make it your own, right? Where one specific example I, I see a lot of, and I'm not picking on anyone, is that, you know, we, we discussed previously making research relatable and practical, I think it's important for us, you know, we're doing this research at these institutions where a lot of times it's inaccessible. I think it's important for us to make our work accessible to everyone, right? Something that's not necessarily valued and emphasized in this archetype of the 
research one research professor, right? And I will also say that, you know, it's also important for us to be engaging and interesting, not just for the sake of doing so, but rather being engaged in the interesting where we get, we're trying to get people outside the academy interested in the things that we teach, the things that we research, and also the things that, you know, we're passionate about as well. Where again, that kind of goes outside of the archetype of the stereotypical research professor. But I think that that's important, you know, just because number one, I think it makes life more rich and interesting. And also number two, with a lot of people questioning the value of what happens in the academy and higher education now more than ever, you know, practically speaking, just for the sake of survival, I think it's important for us to do that, to show that we have value outside of us just publishing in isolation, researching obscure topics, and, you know, just solely teaching classes, where it's important for us to, you know, relate our work to the larger world. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, well, we are coming up on the end of our time recording together, Will. Uh, was there, before we start jumping into the uh, end segment, is there anything that you wanted to chat about that we didn't get to today? No, really, like, no, that's it. Like, I I feel like that overall it's important for us to, you know, do quality work, do the best we can, but also, you know, be, you know, be authentic and find spaces and places where we can be authentic and our talents and abilities are embraced. And not necessarily doing what we're told to do, even though, and I've repeated this a couple of times, oftentimes the people that tell us these things kind of have our welfare, best intentions in mind. But we also we also kind of have to, we have to think for ourselves if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, completely. Yep. Yep. If we don't think for ourselves, someone else will think for us. And, you know, that's not always a good situation to be in. So for the folks listening who want to go into academia and they want to go into more of a, a teaching-oriented or a balanced kind of position, uh, I want to drill down again one last time. What would you say are the top two or three things that they should be focusing on as a grad student before they jump on the job market? I would say number one, being able to display versatility and willingness to teach a variety of topics within your domain of expertise, that's important. I would say, number two, it's also important to show that you are research active and productive, right? But also understanding that there aren't the same expectations that there are at your typical research one, more research-oriented institutions. But also within that, showing a willingness to collaborate with people at the institution you may find yourself working at, right? Where it's just not about, it's just not about like, hey, I'm doing these papers, I'm publishing in these top tier journals or elite journals or whatever you want to call them. Um, also, um, you know, these people are going to be your colleagues. And oftentimes, I know at least at my institution, we're very congenial, you know, we're really friendly. While we may not all necessarily research with each other, we definitely discuss these things and ideas of pedagogy. But it's important to show that you're willing to work with the people that you're willing to work with your colleagues, right? Mm. And 
I think in some cases, people, and I don't, again, don't want to stereotype, people coming from, you know, these more research-intensive programs with more of a research-intensive mindset feel that I have to be productive and I have to be productive and I'm not going to incorporate anyone in what I'm doing. Yeah. And that often is not productive at your more balanced teaching institutions. That makes a lot of sense to me. All right. Um, let's see. So Dr. Will Luce, uh, you can find him on Instagram at Dr. Big Chill Will. Is That's that right? right? That's, That's right. right. And then also on LinkedIn at William Luce. And I'll have links to those in the description of this episode. Uh, so, Will, last question for you. What is one thing that you think grad students should consider doing before they graduate? Oh, man. <laughs> um, could be fun, could be serious. I would say it's like a, it's a lot, it's a lot of things I could say because I had a good time in grad school. I don't know about anyone else. Worked hard, play hard. Yeah. But I would definitely recommend like, hey, find a hobby that interests you outside of your work. Right. Mm. Because we can't, we're not robots. We can't work all of the time. Absolutely. Do you have a specific hobby? I think I know what it is. No, I have a few, you know, oh, okay. I play golf. I like, yep. you know, I like to be active, definitely enjoy hiking, working out and things like that. And I can say that as I was going through graduate school, those were the things that helped me, you know, stay balanced, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. Being balanced is so important. All right, Will. Well, thank you for, so much for coming on the show. It was great to talk to you. Great to see your face live. And uh, I think grad students at home will get a lot out of our conversation. No problem. Happy to help. All right. I'll talk to you in the future. All right. All right, folks. That was my conversation with Dr. William Luce, a.k.a. Dr. Big Chill Will. I hope you got a lot out of that today and be sure to check out the episode description to links for everything that we talked about. And if you know you are ready to go industry, download my six week checklist. You can find it in the episode description as well. That's it. I will see you all next week. 